0: Well, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27 is where we are going to be in God's Word this morning. As you're turning to Mark chapter 12, let me introduce you to a not-recommended Bible resource. The Skeptic's Annotated Bible. I was interested in going back and looking again at the Skeptic's Annotated Bible this week because... The passage we have in the Gospel of Mark is a passage where Jesus is asked a question by some who are skeptical about one of the things in the Bible. Now, I just pulled out one example here out of pages, and I, hopefully this is a fair representative sample of the types of difficulties that the skeptics bring up in their Bible. The birth story of Moses is suspiciously similar to that of the birth of Sargon, an Akkadian monarch from the 3rd millennium BCE. So this is a note from the Skeptic's Annotated Bible in the book of Exodus in the chapter where we have Moses being drawn out of the river and he gets the name Moses as one being drawn out from the water. And so I looked at the... I thought, well, I'll try to be fair. I'll, I'll look at their notes. So I, I followed the link to the BBC article on the tale of the basket where it was written concerning this Akkadian story of Sargon from the third millennium also being a baby who was placed in a basket in a river and who was found. And so there's the question of, well, was the biblical story borrowed from an earlier account? And is it just a, a mythology And so, uh, reading through the article, I was surprised to discover that the BBC article actually did not support that conclusion. I figured that the article that the Skeptics' Annotated Bible was referencing would support the conclusion that Moses' story was borrowed from the Akkadian account. But that's not the case. Uh, The BBC article, in fact, referenced an Egyptologist named Jim Hoffmeyer, who studied the original texts, and he found that the key words in the Exodus account, bulrushes, papyrus, Nile, riverbank, were all Egyptian words in origin, and not Babylonian, as you would expect if he was borrowing from the Babylonian account. Also, the name Moses is an Egyptian name, that's using the same root as the name for Ramses. interesting note and connection there, even though Ramses' name is not mentioned in the biblical account. And so, Jim Hoffmeyer, the Egyptologist, said it's hard to believe that a Hebrew scribe would 1,000 years later come up with a story using authentic Egyptian words in his text if he was borrowing it from the Babylonian myth. And Jim Hoffmeyer says this, there are actually many stories of babies being put in baskets and exposed and put in water in the ancient world. This was their way of putting a child in the hands of fate or the gods. Today, people put babies in baskets and put them on church doorsteps. So if there's a a parallel between one account and another account, it doesn't mean they were borrowed. It just means that this was something that was done. ...in those days and you'd find it recorded in more than one place because it was something that happened. So that's one example of the type of skepticism that is hurled without even a desire to be true to the source from which they're quoting as to whether or not this skepticism is justified... Other examples of notes from the Skeptic's Bible, largely they like to take the wording of the King James Version and misinterpret it according to how words have changed in the last few hundred years and poke fun at the Bible for a translation that's hundreds of years old, which is, of course, sophomoric and has no basis in any academic critique of the Bible. For example, in Psalm 26.2, You have there the scriptural reference that God is going to test or try your reins and your heart. And they're fond of pointing out that the Hebrew word for heart is not actually heart, but it's kidney. And they think that's really humorous. They're like, oh, uh, God's going to search your kidneys. And they just make a joke out of it. It's like, well, that's no real critique of the Bible. That's just a sophomore type of thing to say. And then in Psalm 106, verse 39... Where it says, thus they were defiled with their own works and went a-whoring with their own inventions. They deliberately misconstrue these words to make the charge that God is offended by those who make things with their hands or invent things with their minds. And of course, that is not at all what the psalm is saying. So by misinterpreting scripture and by finding their own sense of humor, they think that they're actually debunking the Bible. Uh, If that's all we have to worry about from the world attacking the scriptures, then then we are in a good place. I went to another website for something similar, and this was a, a blog called 101 of the Craziest, Strangest, Most Ridiculous Bible Absurdities. So I thought, all right, I'm game. Show me the strangest and most ridiculous Bible absurdities. And so I read through a good portion of the list, and I'd like to share with you number 85. Number 85 says, I quote, The Israelite population went from 70... To several million in a few hundred years. Looking at Exodus chapter 1 and then chapter 12 and then chapter 38, you go from the 70 at the beginning of Exodus to millions at the end of Exodus. And so that just seems absurd and ridiculous. How could that possibly be? 70 to millions in just that one book of the Bible. Well, I thought, well, I'll do a little math. So I take 70 and I think, well, a generation is about 40 years And so 400 years is how long they were in slavery in Egypt. So that's 10 generations, right? So yeah, it doesn't seem like you'd get from 70 to millions in just 10 generations. But actually, if you take an average of six children per married couple, that would be a a tripling of the population every generation. And of course, you know, when the skeptic looks at this, he's like, well, nobody has six children anymore. Well, that's right. That's because we have birth control. But before birth control, six children was not that uncommon. In fact, I'd say that's a pretty fair average number. And so you have six children for each married couple on average, and that's 70 times 3 to the 10th power. And 70 times 3 to the 10th power, what do you get? 4.2 million. Wow, that is just absurd. How could the Bible be so ridiculous? So these types of questions and these types of objections are as ridiculous as they claim that the Bible is being ridiculous and are not to be taken seriously. And it's right for us to disregard this type of skepticism for what it is. It's just hostility. You can't pretend that it's objectivity. You can't pretend that it's intellectual. It's just hostility to God and God's word. Now, we find that in the scriptures. This is nothing new. There have always been fools, and there's always been those who are hostile towards God, and they have always thought that they were quite clever. And that's what we have in our text today. If you're in your Bible, I'm going to be looking at Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27, where you see Jesus engaged in public debate, the internet of their day, with a group called the Sadducees. And the question that Jesus is going to be debating with the Sadducees is the subject of bodily resurrection and the afterlife. Does the Old Testament, and in particular the books of Moses, the Torah, do they teach the doctrine of the resurrection of the body? This is what the Sadducees wanted to dispute with Jesus on. And this might seem like a strange dispute to your ears, but in the day that Jesus was living in, this was a very hot topic. This was a very lively discussion of debate. It would be kind of similar to the debate you'd have in churches today between a Calvinist and an Arminian. This is the type of division, the kind of passion, the kind of arguments that can get worked up over an issue like this. In fact, as we read in the book of Acts in our scripture reading, the Sadducees and the chief priests were very alarmed by the preaching of the apostles because the apostles were preaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So this was a political issue in Israel between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were two of the most prominent parts of the ruling government in Israel, the Sanhedrin. And so this is not just an academic question, it's not just a spiritual question, but it is in fact political. And you could also jot down Acts chapter 23 verse 8 for another example to see how hot and political this issue was in their day when Paul strategically used this in order to get all of the members of the Sanhedrin to argue with one another instead of focusing on him and his preaching of the cross. So, with all of that introduction, let's go ahead and read the text, starting there in verse 18 in Mark chapter 12. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife so here's their best gotcha question for jesus now they know a little bit about jesus they know what he's taught they know that he believes in the bodily resurrection and so they've come up with this scenario that they think shows the absurdity of believing in the resurrection how could anyone be so foolish just common sense and a little bit of wit is all you need in order to debunk this foolish theology So the Sadducees come to Jesus, as it says. Now, who were the Sadducees? Well, the Bible tells us about everything we really need to know about the Sadducees there in verse 18. They say that there is no resurrection. So their doctrine, their teaching is, there's no such thing as a resurrection. Now, we find out also in other places in the Gospels and in Acts that not only do they not believe in the resurrection, they also don't believe in angels or spirits They don't believe in life after death at all. So they think you die and that's it. You're gone. So this is a a very interesting view to find common among the Jewish people because if you go back to the Old Testament you find angels in the earliest books of the Bible. In the book of Genesis, you know, the angels show up and have conversations with Abraham, and the Sadducees claim to believe the books of Moses. In fact, that's what their views were based upon. And They didn't look to the later writings of the Old Testament. They just wanted to stick with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was their minimized canon that they thought was super authoritative. And so they wanted proof from the book of Moses, that there was this doctrine of the resurrection. But, you know, if they don't even believe that angels exist, and that's obvious in the book of Genesis and the rest of the books of Moses, then, well, what's the real problem here? Is the problem that there's no evidence, or is the problem that they've got some preconceived ideas that they're bringing to the text? Ding, 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 I think we've hit a winner there. You'll see it as we continue on through the text. Now, As far as the Sadducees and their historical development and where their name comes from, it's a little murky. You may have heard that the Sadducees were the party of the chief priests. That's a possibility, but the evidence for that is somewhat later and it's not exactly airtight. So where they came from and what exactly was all of their political positions, we don't know. And in fact, we don't need to know. They pretty much die out after the temple is destroyed, so it does seem like they were closely associated with the temple cultists. After 70 AD, no more temple, and then therefore no more base for the temple party, so to speak, the Sadducees. Now, some people hold that the Sadducees were the rich and the powerful and that they were associated with the elite class, and, and that's a possibility. But whether or not that's true is not as important as the fact that these were a group who didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in the afterlife, they didn't believe in spirits, and that's how they interact with the Christians throughout the Gospels and the book of Acts. They're just very hostile to those ideas. Now, They ask him their best gotcha question, and it has to do with the subject of leveret marriage. You see that there where they say, Moses wrote for us, if a man's brother dies, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now this is a strange law. It's not something that seems to make a lot of sense to modern ears, but this is very important in the ancient world because In the ancient world, the maintenance of your line, your descendants, and your family inheritance was a huge part of their culture. And so to die childless was one of the worst things that could happen to you in the ancient world because it meant that your line had ended and that you had no inheritance to be passed on to future generations. And so The Leveret marriage law, which has nothing to do with the tribe of Levi, although you might get confused thinking that you see the word Levi there, it's actually not from the Hebrew. The Leveret is from the Latin, which means brother-in-law. So this is the brother-in-law marriage law. So the brother-in-law marries the widow and raises up a child that will carry on that brother, the one who died without children, his family line. So it's not a direct physical connection from the actual father, but he is accounted as the son of the deceased brother for sake of inheritance rights. Now, I don't want to preach a whole message on leveret marriage because that's not the purpose here today, but I just want you to understand the basis for their question. Now, there are two key Old Testament examples of leveret marriage in practice. The first is in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 38, where Tamar... Her husband dies, and Onan, the brother of the deceased, is supposed to carry out this function. However, he refuses to do so, and because of his dishonoring of his brother and his unwillingness to raise up offspring for the deceased brother, God actually punishes Onan with death. And you can go back and read that story in Genesis chapter 38 if you're interested in the subject of leveret marriage. The other example you're probably more familiar with is the example of Ruth. If you read through the book of Ruth, it's a short book, four chapters that really tie together and tell a wonderful, beautiful story. It's a story about a kinsman redeemer. That Ruth is a Moabitess and her husband, who was a Jew, an Israelite, he died without having any children with her. And Naomi, therefore, the mother-in-law, the mother of the, the son who died, that was the end of the line. Both of her sons died, none of them had any children, and so it was the end of their line and this was the tragedy that had befallen them. But because of Leveret marriage, Boaz comes in and raises up an offspring by marrying Ruth so that the family line of Naomi is continued through this practice of Leveret marriage, brother-in-law marriage. He was a a near relative who fulfilled that role. So that's the basis for their question. Now, is it too cute for me to point out that those who don't believe in a resurrection see children as the only path to life after death? I mean, is it coincidence here that the Sadducees are asking this question about leveret marriage because in their mind they're thinking, well, you're descendants. That's the only thing that follows after you after you die. There is no afterlife aside from descendants. That might be part of this whole scenario as well, although it's not explicit. It might be implicit in the text. So they say there were seven brothers. Whether this was an actual case or whether this is a made-up case, we don't know. doesn't matter. Now, with all seven brothers having married the unfortunate woman who was never having any children and who all of her husbands died, none of them having any children means that none of the seven brothers have an obvious advantage in claiming a a special relationship that would supersede so they'd have a greater claim in the resurrection to this marriage partner. That's why they have the scenario this way with the seven leaving no offspring in verse 22 and so they want to know in the resurrection when they rise again whose wife will she be for the seven had her as wife so and they're like aha answer that one if you're so smart now the sadducee's question is based upon a faulty premise always examine the premises The premises are going to be the way that people sneak in an idea that will then try to make your position look absurd. If they can get you to accept a faulty premise, then they can, by logic, reduce your position to an absurdity. That's called the argument reductio ad absurdum. When you reduce the opponent's position to an absurd position, that's an effective argument. And one way to do this, sneakily, is to sneak in a faulty premise. Now, what was their faulty premise? that people are still married to their spouse in the resurrection, that marriage is still a thing in the resurrection. Now, where was that written in the Old Testament? It's not. That's something they're importing. That's a preconception. That's a premise that they are importing that is not in Scripture. People are always doing this. People are always importing their assumptions into the argument and assuming, therefore, that the Bible is contradictory. But the Bible does not contradict its own premises, It might contradict your premises, and that's why you have to prove that your premise is true. The Bible will conflict with a humanistic standard of justice. The Bible will conflict with philosophical naturalism, because they are different premises from what the Bible has. You can't show the Bible to be absurd because it contradicts the premises of a different worldview. The Bible is only absurd if it contradicts its own premises, like all of these worldviews do, except for the Bible. That's how we show that it's absurd to believe in philosophical naturalism because it contradicts its own premises. Now, so many critiques of the Bible simply boil down to the Bible doesn't agree with what I believe, therefore the Bible is wrong. Great argument. That's like me going around and saying, well, you know, Darwinism doesn't agree with what I believe, so Darwinism is wrong. Are you convinced? No, that's not a convincing argument. In the minds of the Sadducees, they had given a very convincing argument, but Jesus is not impressed. Let's read Jesus' argument back in verse 24. Jesus' answer, verses 24 to 27, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. All right, so he dismisses them rather forcefully. And the question has to arise, is Jesus rude to the Pharisees in his response? you know Jesus meek and gentle and mild and we're supposed to show every consideration for all men is Jesus setting a bad example for us here I wanted to share with you a, a verse on that Proverbs chapter 26 actually two verses but they go together and aha another contradiction the bible says answer not a fool according to his folly and in the very next verse it contradicts itself and says answer a fool according to his folly so which one is it bible Are we supposed to answer a fool according to his folly or not answer a fool according to his folly? I mean, how could anybody believe something so stupid? All right, so let me explain what the Bible is trying to communicate for someone who's not hostile towards the Bible. When the Bible says, answer not a fool according to his folly, it means don't accept his premises. His folly is based upon his foolish premise and don't accept his premise or else you're going to be like him. And when it says answer a fool according to his folly, rather than contradicting himself in the very next sentence, can't we show enough grace to the gospel writer to think that maybe he's doing a play on words here? Answer a fool according to his folly means that if someone is asking a sophomore question, you answer them recognizing that they are a fool. And that's what Jesus does with the Sadducees. He says, you are greatly mistaken. You are seriously in error. This is not just some innocent logical mistake that is being made that is forgivable. There's something seriously wrong in the heart of the person who makes a mistake like this. So that's what Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 is talking about. Let's take a little bit of analysis here of Jesus' answer in verse 24 to 27. He points out the reason for their hidden premise. He tells us that they've got this wrong premise, that in the resurrection there's marriage. And Jesus says, no, in the resurrection there's no marriage. There's your faulty premise. But he says, the reason for your faulty premise, that's what he goes to first. He says, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Now, I think what we have here is what is common in scriptures. You've got a pattern of ABBA. So the A is you don't know the scriptures. And then the B is you don't know the power of God. So in verse 25, he explains what he means by them not knowing the power of God. That's what corresponds to the initial B. That's the second B. And then in verse 26, he explains how they don't know the scriptures. And that is the A. So he says you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God and then he explains this is how you're not understanding the power of God and this is how you're not understanding the scriptures. Let's analyze it that way. I think that's the right way to look at it. Just like the atheist snipers today who pick out a verse in the Bible about God searching the kidneys and snicker about it, they think they know something about the Bible but in fact they don't know anything just like the liberal theologians today who have read and studied the Bible and written books on it and read article after article and they know the original languages. They think they know, but they don't know anything about the Bible. They know a lot, but they know nothing at the same time. Having read it and studied it, they are still ignorant of the scriptures. And this is not a problem of intellect. It's a problem of the heart. There's something seriously wrong in the heart of someone who can read and study the scriptures and ask a stupid question like this. Those who mock at God, they do so because they think they're so much more intelligent. They think they're so much more well informed. They think they're so much in a better position to understand this than you ignorant masses who just sit in church on Sunday morning and drink in whatever the pastor's telling you. But it's they who are truly ignorant of what is most important in life. The skeptic trusts in his own reasoning based upon current conditions. Let's look at that in verse 25. He says in verse 25, When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. See, they don't know the power of God because they assume that in the resurrection, life is pretty much going to be the way that it is now. They're reasoning from what they know to what they don't know, and they're assuming it's got to have this continuity. They're reasoning from their own experience, and from what makes sense, and what seems possible in their imagination. But you don't have any idea of what is possible, and neither do they, because the power of God goes far beyond what we could imagine or think. And so to limit God and say, well, there can't be a resurrection, because, you know, who's going to be married to who in the resurrection? Why limit God according to your own conception of what it's going to be like? Now, when Jesus says they are like angels, they are as angels in heaven, he doesn't mean that we become angels, but that we will share certain characteristics that the angels have now, then. Namely, in light of what we're looking at here, immortality and a lack of procreation, which kind of go together, right? If people lived forever, there wouldn't be as much of a need for procreation. And the fact that we've had so many people born in the last few thousand years means that in the resurrection there's not a need for increasing the population on the earth. So procreation is no longer necessary and that is what goes along with marriage here. So immortality and lack of procreation kind of go together and that's how we become like the angels in the resurrection. And so, for those of you that are married and you're wondering, am I going to be married in the resurrection? Jesus says, no, you are not going to be married in the resurrection. Now, for some of you, that will come as a great disappointment. For some of you, that might come as a sense of relief. But whatever the case, don't make the same mistake that the Sadducees make, that think, well, just because I can't understand how that's going to be good, then it can't be that way. There's a lot of things that are good that you don't understand how it's going to work out. Just trust God. You're not going to be married in the resurrection, and you're going to be fine. You're going to be happy. It's going to be good. Don't worry. Now, just a side note here. You know, you talk to a Mormon, and they say, the Bible does not contradict the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon does not contradict the Bible. I it's like, well, what about marriage in heaven? Jesus said, in the resurrection, there's no marriage. Why do you guys have these eternal marriages? Isn't that a contradiction? see, I'm not saying you guys are contradicting my beliefs. I'm saying you're contradicting your own beliefs. You say the Bible does not contradict the Book of Mormon. And yet the Book of Mormon says something that is directly contrary to what Jesus says. I don't know if that's in the Book of Mormon, but it's, it's in their teachings, the teachings of the LDS Church, this eternal marriage. Anyway, that's a side note. Now, in verse 26 then, he goes on and corrects their misunderstanding of the Scriptures. And notice that Jesus quotes from the passage about the bush, which is how people referenced the Old Testament before they had chapter divisions. They would just point out one of the key elements of the text that would distinguish it from other texts. And so we know the passage about the bush as Exodus chapter 3. That's where that is found according to our chapter divisions. But at the time of Jesus, they didn't yet have the chapter divisions, so they just refer to it in this manner. And he says in the chapter about the bush, because he's proving from the Torah, as I see there, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses. He's proving from the Torah, which was the part of the Bible that the Sadducees held as authoritative. So he's finding an authority that they can agree on. You guys say that the Torah is God's word. Let me show you from the Torah that it teaches about the doctrine of the resurrection and the afterlife. So that's very intentional on Jesus' part. He could have easily gone to a much more clear passage like Isaiah chapter 26 or Daniel chapter 12 in order to show the teaching on resurrection in the Old Testament. But he doesn't do those verses because he wants to show them from the law, which they say they believe in, that this is taught there. And he asked them, have you never read in the book of Moses where God spoke to Moses in this way? And I'd like to again to, to focus on that. He asked the same question before to the Pharisees. And it's a very insulting question to religious teachers. If somebody came in to church this morning, we were having a debate on the stage, and they said, Timothy, haven't you even read the book of Romans? I, mean, I Of course I've read the book of Romans. I've taught the book of Romans. I've got notes, you know, a file this thick on the book of Romans. Um, but what he's saying is, yeah, I know you've read it, but you're acting like you've never read it. You have read it without understanding. You've read it without insight. Reading the Bible, listen, listen to this reading the Bible without respecting it as the Word of God is like not reading it at all. Reading the Bible without respecting it as the Word of God is like not reading it at all. And that's the way the Sadducees were. They'd read it many times, but they had never submitted themselves to it. They didn't tremble at the Word of God. Instead, they had their own views, their own opinions, and they just searched the Scriptures for whatever would bolster their views and their opinions. They were not willing to be corrected by the Scriptures. They didn't come to listen and learn. They came for ammunition to be able to use for their own politics. Not the way to read the Bible. Now, as you look at Jesus' answer, notice that there is nothing explicit in the text that says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are going to be resurrected. Jesus quotes a passage and he says that God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus draws out the implication of God's statement and says, while it's not explicit, it is implicit in what God has said that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob live. They're still alive. Now, when it comes to implicit and explicit arguments, here's the definition for implicit from Merriam-Webster's dictionary, capable of being understood from something else, though unexpressed. So the idea that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still alive in the spiritual sense, life after death like we talk about, is implicit in what God says here, according to Jesus. It's capable of being understood even though it is unexpressed. That's what Jesus is saying here. Notice that Jesus holds men accountable to understand what is implicit in Scripture. Jesus holds us accountable to understand what is implicit in Scripture. I don't see any other conclusion that you could draw from this text than that. When you're reading the Bible you're not just looking for what is explicitly stated, but you're also looking for what is implied by the Bible text. I looked up a quote also on the website for Merriam-Webster on the use of the word implicit and explicit in recent times. And so on the BBC News, they're getting a lot of references today, second reference for BBC News, Sarah Rainsford, reporting on Russia and Ukraine back in 2016, said this, Russia's president was explicit calling on the West to pressure Kiev to deliver results. Implicit within that was a threat that Moscow will not play along with the talks forever. So there's what they explicitly say, but then there's what is clearly implied in what they have said. And you can't just play dumb and say, well, I didn't know that that was implied in what you said. You need to say it explicitly if I'm going to understand it. Now, there's a level of communication where we all just expect people to understand what we're implying by what we say. And if you don't understand, you ask for clarification. Asking for clarification is by cross-referencing, looking at other scriptures, seeing what God's word says. You can ask for clarification on what is implicit in scripture. All right. So, Jesus' argument clearly proves the immortality of the soul. But... Some people say it stops short of actually proving bodily resurrection, right? You look at the text. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Well, technically speaking, that only goes so far as life after death, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still exist as spiritual beings with God. It doesn't necessarily say anything about bodily resurrection, you see? Well, once again, what is implicit in the doctrine of life after death, according to the scriptures, according to the worldview, the mindset of the Bible, is bodily resurrection. Jesus doesn't take the time here to go on and explain, well, this then also implies bodily resurrection, because in their context, they went together. In the worldview that was shared between those who saw the Old Testament as the Word of God, they recognized that human existence was incomplete without resurrection. And therefore, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still exist, if their consciousness goes on after death, then therefore there must be a bodily resurrection because of how God has made us and made the world. It was only the Greek mindset, which we are largely influenced by, that thought of human beings as being able to be complete without a body or that being bodiless was superior to having a body. In the Jewish mindset, that was not the sense. So in Jesus' context, he doesn't have to prove bodily resurrection. He only has to prove life after death, because if he prove that, by logical consequence, you also have resurrection. I have to explain all of that because we like to think about things from our perspective and our worldview, and I say we, I mean 21st century critics, and not be fair to the text in its own context. Now, let's go ahead and make a few application points here in conclusion. Put our specs on. Number one, I want to start at the end with the K, knowledge about God. And for that, I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 was the other passage I had in mind for our scripture reading today. I thought I'd save it here for the application time, and I I want to read with you, starting there in verse 12, to show that this belief that the Sadducees had, which was probably influenced by the Greco-Roman culture around them, and a bias against the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead, was not something that was limited to Jesus and the Sadducees, but it continued to be a discussion and a debate in the early churches. And so Paul, right in Corinthians, says this, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first fruits, as Paul will say later in this chapter. It's the guarantee of of the doctrine of resurrection that was explicitly stated by the prophet Isaiah and by the prophet Daniel, that was implicitly stated by God at the burning bush, that God has now given proof to all men by raising Jesus from the dead that there is life after death, that there is a final judgment, and this is key. How can there be justice in this world if there is no life after death? And if there is no resurrection, those who are wicked get away with it. Those who are righteous suffer. Where is justice if death ends our existence? There is no personal justice in that world. And so because God is a just God and because we are personal beings, it is a divine necessity, it is a logical necessity, divine being where logic comes from, that there must be a resurrection from the dead. But if logic is not enough for you, God has given you historical proof of the resurrection of the dead and that Jesus has been raised. And this is what troubled the Sadducees so much, is that the apostles were preaching the resurrection from the dead in Jesus. Also, come down to verse 50. Actually, start in verse 35. Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So here's these sophomore questions again, right? I can't understand it. I can't conceive of it, so it's stupid. Uh, Maybe you're the one who's stupid. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, the power of God, and to each kind of seed, its own body not all flesh is the same there's one kind for humans another for animals another for birds and another for fish there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory you know one of the critiques in the annotated skeptics bible is that the bible talks about the moon light and we all know that the moon is not a source of light but it only reflects the light that comes from the sun. So, aha, the Bible is wrong again and nobody should listen to such a foolish, antiquated book. And so, I always want to say to the skeptic, when you get up in the morning and you tell your wife, I was up at sunrise, your wife should never believe anything you ever say again because everyone knows the sun doesn't rise, the earth spins, you moron! (laughs) Sorry. So it is, God says, with the resurrection from the dead. Verse 42. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. We can stop there, but I encourage you to read the whole chapter as part of your devotions this week. The chapter on resurrection. Very encouraging. Secondly, I want us to beware of a culpable ignorance of the scriptures. Okay? The ignorance that the Sadducees had was not an innocent ignorance. It was a culpable ignorance. And we must beware the same danger. Now we can sit here and laugh at the sophomores, but recognize that you also have sophomoric tendencies. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. A little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. As the proverb says, and we all have a little bit of knowledge, and if you don't recognize that, you are in danger. It says this in 1 Corinthians chapter eight. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The Sadducees were puffed up. The historical records record that they were rude and arrogant, quick to argue. They were puffed up with knowledge. If anyone, notice verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, I know something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If you think you know, you don't know. If anyone loves God, he's known by God. You get that? The important thing is loving God. If you love God, then you will gain knowledge. Humbly, step by step, little by little. If you don't love God... You will think you know, but you don't. So be on guard against that. Notice that a lack of faith or a lack of love can lead to a spiritual blindness where you know the content of the Bible, but you're blind to its implications. And you're blind to how it's supposed to be applied in your own life. We're all susceptible to that problem. And then thirdly, as I said before, notice that you are responsible to make the proper deductions from Scripture. When you read the Bible, the attitude that you have, the way that you tremble before God's Word, it will either help you or hinder you from making the proper deductions, and you are responsible. The Sadducees drew a deduction based upon their unbelief. That's culpable. Jesus drew a deduction based upon faith. Unbelief is not reasonable. Belief is reasonable and provides a good basis for deduction. Examine your heart and what premises you are bringing to the text. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the words of Jesus Christ and his example in knowing how to answer a fool according to his folly. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom in this world to know how to do what you command in honoring all men, in being humble in our hearts, while at the same time knowing when to speak the truth plainly and clearly out of that heart of love. Lord, help us not to fear man, but help us to love our fellow neighbor. Help us to fear you and to tremble at your word. And help us to search our own hearts for the folly that is there for the foolish premises that we bring to your word so that it doesn't change us, it doesn't affect us, and we can remain in the sorry state that we are. Lord, show each one of us the little bit of knowledge that we have and how much we have yet to learn so that in humility we can learn from you as we sit at your feet. Amen.